than the clothes we wear, style is about the way we move through the world. On this episode of Beyond Style Matters, I talk with the extraordinary Agota Gabor. In this age of reinvention, where the only constant is change and resiliency is the ultimate survival tool, Agota Gabor deserves a medal. The Toronto-based age-defying dynamo, known to her friends as Aggie, is a living testament to the power of positivity. As a young girl, her dreams of being a prima ballerina in her native Budapest were shattered when she was paralyzed by polio. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And Aggie knew she had to keep on going. She learned how to walk and even dance again, and after she and her mother fled the 1956 Hungarian Revolution and immigrated to Canada, Aggie reinvented herself as a glamorous chorus girl in Montreal. Her imagination and her drive led her to pursue a gig in television, teaching others to dance, and eventually she went back to school to study journalism, becoming an international TV news reporter before establishing herself as a PR powerhouse and media trainer. Aggie's new autobiography, Forever on Point, tells the story of her brave and exciting journey and inspires us all to have the guts and tenacity to go for it at any age. As Aggie sees it, while life can be very tough, it can also be a great adventure. Ultimately, it all boils down to attitude. Agota Gabor, or I'll call you Aggie. Welcome to this episode of Beyond Style Matters. Ah, you are a very magical person, I think. I met you so fleetingly, very recently at your book launch, your beautiful book, Forever On Point. I just fell in love with you, your dynamism and uh, your aura, um, something very special about it. And, you know, maybe it's because you have been living a most extraordinary life. Well, uh, you made my day, first of all. Thank you very much. I don't know if it's extraordinary. It has been a very full life, and it still is. Many ups and downs. I call it a roller coaster life, you know, from the beginning. It was so happy. I had, a, in a way, wonderful childhood because I spent my childhood at the Budapest Opera House and mm. I was called what you call those kids who study ballet at the Opera House they call us ballet rats because <laughs> we don't you know I know it's, it's everywhere in Paris um, Milan everywhere ballet rats because we're all over the place we're not just studying dancing. You live there. You take dancing. You go in the morning at eight o'clock. You have ballet. Then you have character dancing. Then you have a rehearsal. So you live there. Then you go to school there in a dressing room. So it's a fantastic, fantastic childhood. But but I was just going to say, even getting before the uh, you know the up, as you talked about the ups and downs, and that certainly is the nature of the beast that we call life. Because uh, and especially you know what. When the highs are so fabulous, uh, unfortunately, then the lows 
are so devastating. And, and it's, you know, it's that's that's where the balance comes in. But for you to have that degree of passion for dance or ballet at such a young age, for you to you to want that more than you wanted anything, it seemed at the time, your passion was just so overwhelming and a passion which has really continued uh, throughout your life. But how did how did that happen? What what was it about uh, ballet uh, and that kind of discipline that uh, drove you? I don't know. I, I had two aunts who were dancers. So dance was in the family. They were not ballerinas, but they always danced. They, they were an act, a sister act in Europe between the two world wars, which must have been amazing. And when they came back to Budapest and I was just two or three years old, but they would let me dance with them. And that was kind of fun. So that started, my mom took me to a dance teacher and I just fell in love with the whole idea of the music. Uh, I have a very musical and I have a great sense of rhythm and everything fit. And it was just so much fun. And I guess I was very good uh, from the start. So the teacher pointed my mom to a teacher who was also the head of the opera ballet and he had a private school. And so I started learning from him and I was just very good. I just loved it so much. I was never as happy as when I danced. And that went on until I was 15 years old. I could see myself as Swan, Odile or Odilia. I was trying to see which one would I do better. And unfortunately, that summer, there was a, a polio epidemic and uh, I got polio. And in the middle of all that, I was paralyzed. And for a while, it didn't look like I could walk, never mind dance. And, yeah. and that was a real downer. How did you lift yourself uh, out of that dark place? How, how, how does, you know, for a child that, you know, still, you know, that young, to really have the wherewithal to, to keep going, to put one step in front of the other. I mean, I know there were times you wanted to give up. I mean, at one time, you, you just couldn't bear it. I couldn't cope. I, it was actually the, a couple of times I had a, a breakdown. Once when I was told that, never mind, I, I may not ever walk again in the hospital. And of course, we were in a in a ward lockdown. As nowadays, we know what it means, but nobody could come in. And that, that was the first time I broke down. They had to put me to sleep for days, I think, to get me just to, to function. And then um, I went to uh, physiotherapy for children with um, neurological problems that affects their mobility. And it was excellent. The, it was terrible, horrible. Was, the kids were, uh, I was so used to beauty and dance and all that. And now I had to move with kids that were much sicker than I. And I was very sick. And after a year, which I hated, I um, and my mother helped me to make a deal with the actual opera house, with the ballet school by then, because it changed a little bit with the political system. This is under the 50s, under Soviet rule, so everything goes by the politics, even ballet. So they let me go back to take classes because ballet is very good exercise. And that's when I really break, broke down. 
because I couldn't do it. And I could see it in my eyes, in my head, how it should be done and how I used to do it. And I couldn't. That was even harder. So I stopped that. But I got good enough that I could dance. I could do folk dancing. I could do jazz. I could do modern dancing, but not ballet because you see in all the other dances, you can compensate. If you mm-hmm. can't do it on your left, but you do it on your right in mm-hmm. ballet, it's no way. Well, it was just the start of your uh, reinventions uh, because <laughs> there have been uh, several over the years. I mean, you've had uh, such such a, a dizzying kind of life, really, for someone that, you know, how, how many times could someone um, <laughs> sort of fall down and just, you know, pick up the pieces and, and put the puzzle together in a different way, create a different picture. And that's what you did for yourself. You fled uh, Hungary with your mom and uh, wow, yeah. what a team uh, you two were. Tell me a little bit about how that journey uh, unfolded. It was after the Hungarian Revolution, which was actually successful for three weeks. And then the Russian tanks came in and it was street fighting and we were shot, uh, shot at. And I was hungry. And frankly, I, I wanted to leave. I wanted a new start because my life was ballet and that was ending. So I had to have a new start anyway. It might as well be somewhere else. But my mom didn't want to leave because she was 51 and she had a life there. She had a job. She had her sisters. She had everything. And she was, but, but on the other hand, we were always so close, just the two of us, because my parents were divorced. There was no way one would go and the other would stay. So we finally made a bet. And my mom, at her work, they were giving away some geese, goose, to the employees. And she said, I make a deal with you, Agota. And I said, what? She said, if I get a goose and I make you a terrific dinner, will you give up this crazy thought of leaving? And I said, okay. But I said, mom, if you don't get a goose, I'm going to get a truck that takes us close to the border and we'll leave. She said, yes. And she didn't get a goose. And she lived up to her promise. And we went back to the apartment. She locked it. She took a couple of paintings to her sister. And then we got a little salami and our papers and uh, got on the truck that went close to the border. And then we got a guide and then we walked through the night to Austria. Uh, Amazing. Uh, You eventually uh, found your way to Montreal. And you started <laughs> yeah. uh, a new career I, as a dancer, a different kind of a dancer. Back then, I mean, it still is pretty hopping. I love Montreal. But uh, back in those days, uh, you, you had a job performing kind of at nightclubs. At the Bellevue Casino. It was like, uh, remember the Copacabana in New York, the big ones. It's like Las Vegas today, really. It was a big, big nightclub, supper club. It seated 600 people and they had a New York producer bring in reviews. They had dancers, singers, they had big headliners like uh, Tony Bennett was there, uh, Edith Piaf was there. I mean, huge, big name. But we were the backdrop, the dancers and the singers and the showgirls with the big hat. So 
I, uh, I heard because I worked as a waitress before that. And in that cafe, I heard that there was an opening and I went and I auditioned and I got hired as a dancer. And it was uh, totally different. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we were very glamorous. Montreal was really glamorous. The artists, the, the headliners were from all over the world. And the support acts were magicians with birds and everything. It was fascinating. I mean, remember, I was very young, so all this was fun. So I did that. But then everything closed because uh, the then... Uh, mayor of uh, Montreal, Mayor Drapeau, decided to clean up Montreal because it was decadent. And, and so I lost my job and uh, I got a job teaching dancing at Arthur Murray. I mean, mm-hmm. dancing was all I knew. So I had yeah. to stay in the. And I learned a lot from Arthur Murray. And I kind of, as the word today's pivot, I kind of pivot that knowledge into the idea that if I can teach people how to cha-cha or foxtrot, why couldn't I teach the television camera or yeah. why couldn't I have a, a little show? So That was uh, genius. I mean, just to really be able to, to stand back and see the forest for the trees, which is, I think, something that you must have done so often in your life because you you really had to go to plan B. You know, you, you had an idea, something didn't work. You were ready to, as you say, pivot and, and try something else. The TV thing, you know, when I think today, you know, what was such a popular kind of segment on the Ellen DeGeneres show, you know, when she starts oh, dancing, everybody loves it. You were so ahead of your time to realize that a Canadian audience could would appreciate something like, you know, learning how to dance on TV. And Ginny, at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to wake up. <laughs> well, it was a morning show and I, oh. I knew it was a, a novel idea, but I was lucky because it was Dodie Robb at CFTO who interviewed me. She wasn't sure if it would work, neither was I. But, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, it's not such a big risk for her to put me on and teach the Foxer. And so, but it became very popular because we used to have graphics that I would jot out and the graphic artist would, remember that you're too young, but remember that time when we had easels and put graphics on them and we walked over and showed instead of today? Yeah. And so it became popular and we moved it to 10 o'clock. So that was good. And unbelievable. And really ended up not only teaching people how to dance, but for yourself, you spun it into an incredible career in TV production. Yeah. At that time, you know, people look at me, you know, because I was lucky enough to start in entertainment reporting and um, in television back in the late 70s, really. And people mm-hmm. say, oh, you're such a trailblazer. You did this. This that like is nothing compared to what you did at that time in the 60s and the climate for women, especially, uh, you know, I mean, I saw what we had to go through, you know, later in the in the 70s. But like in the 60s, what yeah. you must have uh, put up with, uh, I don't know. Well, it, it was real. I, I really kind of fell in love. I thought that really was my plan. We learn about television because now I had a foot in and, and I went back to journalism school. And then I worked really hard, but I had a great life. 
I, I went to Ryerson. Well, now it's Metropolitan Museum. But at the time, it was still Ryerson. Yeah. And I went during the day and I got a script assistant job, production assistant job at the news department where I worked at night. It was very hard, but you know what? It was great fun. And it was great fun to go back to school. I was like a sponge in journalism. You know, as a lot, I didn't know. I think I have a, a curious mind, so I want to learn, but that was wonderful to learn it. And, and so I graduated and uh, became a television reporter. Every great conversation needs a pause, so this is a perfect time to talk to you about our sponsor, TSC, who, without their support, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Now, as you might know, I've covered the catwalks of Paris, Milan, New York, and London. And so why have I partnered with a retailer like TSC, today's shopping choice? Well, I believe that great fashion should be accessible to everyone. And TSC.ca is home to some wonderful Canadian brands and designers like Kim Newport Mimran, Brian Bailey, Kayla Kay, Ron White, and Hilary McMillan. And of course, TSE offers so much more than mere fashion. Discover quality Canadian jewellery and accessories from Pico, Brass and Unity, and I. You can find more Canadian designers and brands in the CAFA store at tse.ca slash CAFA. And let's all shop better together. Now, you have had, obviously, a lot of, as as most uh, attractive women, uh, your share of, you know, ups and downs and romance. And uh, you <laughs> obviously, you know, you, you, you've been married um, once, a few times, a few times <laughs> once to a, a fellow that you met in Europe. And then and then you had a wonderful um, relationship with a, a, a wonderful, yes. wonderful man with a huge personality and a very successful uh, Canadian broadcaster as yes. well, Bill Cunningham, and had a, a little girl with your beautiful daughter, yes. Kathy. That was a, a whole saga in itself. I mean, that's worthy of a, a whole <laughs> mini series, your wonderful affair with Bill Cunningham and, and how that started. Because when you first met him, you were just sort of a... a a hopeful going in to try and and pitch something and and you know he yes. was so seasoned as yes. a broadcast journalist <laughs> at that point you not so much um but yeah. somehow you know he took you on board and I'm sure you did a lot from Bill and and it developed blossomed into yes. a gorgeous uh, romance I was still working at Take Thirty at the time and going to school that's kind of to set it up and I was going to Hungary. Hungary uh, gave uh, amnesty to all of us who left 10 years prior to it. And my mom was going, but we didn't have very much money at the time. So we couldn't afford a ticket for both of us. And then I went to take 30 and I said, look, I have a little bit of an audience here and I know a little bit about television. That's exaggerating at the time. But but I do know what I want to talk about. I want to talk about young people and women in Hungary. And I like to see how they live, those who stayed, and to compare it to my life in Canada. And I said, you don't have to know all that if I have a good cameraman and I talk to them. And so I was going to go. And then, funnily enough, then my then husband, brought a magazine home. The Telegram had a magazine part in it. 
and say, look at that. This guy, Bill Cameron, uh, he was a friend and colleague of Cunningham's, just came back from Moscow. And they have a story, just like what you want to do. Why don't you call him? Maybe they want to do something with you in Hungary while you're there. So gave me an idea. I called. And it wasn't Cameron, but Bill Cunningham, whose turn was to go. So I called him and we have an, had an appointment and and I met him and and I have this in my book because it was really a weird thing happened. He was in an office and I was standing at the door and he waved me in and kind of pointed to a chair and he had his feet on his desk. And I looked at him and I said to myself, that's not very nice. He should take his feet off his desk. That's rude. But I didn't say that. And I just sat there and all of a sudden a flash went through my head. And I said, what? I wonder what it would be like to be married to that man. Just like that. Like and a premonition. <laughs> yes. And yet I didn't really like him because he was rude because his foot. Anyway, he finally took his feet off and started talking to me and I gave him a pitch and he took a screen test that I got the job and uh, but we were both married at the time so it was a little difficult but we did start dating in Hungary and then we came back and ended up getting married so um, unbelievable I mean it, it kind of you know I mean again uh, getting back to that touchy kind of subject that I was talking about before you know being a woman uh, you know in in television or trying to make your mark in television, um, an industry that was really run to a large degree by men. Of course, you mentioned that wonderful producer, Dodie Robb, yeah. and she was the one that really gave you a, a, yeah. a great chance. I mean, a big break in your life. But, um, you know, I often felt, and I'm ta talking about so a decade, you know, because I came along a decade later, yeah. that a lot of these guys were preying on uh, the young women, you know, they were like, oh yeah, hey honey, you know, you want to be a star, you know, just uh, shack up with me or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> you know, be nice to me and I'll make it happen for you. I mean, I cannot yeah. tell you how many times that happened to me and I'm sure everyone has those stories. Oh, it happened to me stories. too. You know, yeah. I mean, I was lucky that Cunningham wanted to marry me, not just... <laughs> <laughs> He was a good one <laughs> for a while. <laughs> <laughs> But there were others who wanted different things. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it, it was a, a tough thing. And then unfortunately, our marriage did not work out because um, perhaps uh, because of work, because Bill was very well established and we, then uh, he was, uh, he became Far Eastern correspondent mm -hmm. for CBC. And so once I finished school, we moved to Hong Kong, which was wonderful. And I was freelancing uh, both for television and for print. And uh, I was very ambitious. I wanted to make my own career and it clashed a lot, especially when I wrote for print and I would you know, scoop him on the story because print is faster than television. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't satellite at the time. So it didn't work. And also, but then I got a PR job in Hong Kong and it worked for a while because we had uh, yeah. two lives. And so again, got... here you are pivoting <laughs> like a good dancer should be able to twist and turn. Yeah. Here you are like a journalist. You're doing, you know, moved into the kind of hard news uh, 
area. Yes. And all of a sudden, I understand that whole thing where it becomes kind of a competition, but leaving my ex-husband was in the same business as me. Okay. And I thought, oh, this is a this is a good thing because we're going to understand each other and we're going to, you know, really get each other. But it's kind of does sometimes become a competition for what well, the men especially have their egos to protect. Yeah, so exactly. at any rate, that's a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but the <laughs> fact that you all of a sudden reinvented yourself as a PR person for yeah. a big hotel, it was yeah. at the, in Hong Kong, the Mandarin. The Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong. Wow. I was so lucky, Ginny, because, you know, I, I could see our marriage deteriorating because we were fighting. And so then I said, I'm going to stay in Hong Kong and he can go travel on his own. And somebody came and said, hey, there's a job going at the Mandarin. Have you ever done PR? I said, no, but I can write. Uh, Surely it can't be that different. And so I got a job as an assistant to the PR director and the PR director left Hong Kong two days later. So I just fell into this wonderful job, you know, and I learned PR. <laughs> but the, the fact that, as you said, you could write, I mean, you were a communicator from the get-go, yeah. even as a performer, you were a great communicator, yeah. but you also understood the media by this point, yeah. having, you know, written and, and certainly a, your, your broadcast yeah. background in television. Uh, eventually then coming back to, uh, to Canada and, you know, again, more more twists and turns to your story. It's just uh, incredible how eventually you uh, started a a company that would train people uh, in the media with something that was so important. Now it seems, you know, with social media and everybody's a, you know, rock star with their telephone, you know, everyone's making their own (laughs) videos and they don't need anybody's advice. It seems, I don't know. Um, But in those early days. It was very new, very new. Yeah. So, such an important and you yeah. had the most amazing relationships uh, with companies. I mean, now your company still exists yeah, it's to this still day. There. It's still there. Uh, COVID has slowed us down like every business, yep. but mm-hmm. coming back. And yeah, I really believe once I went to PR, it was getting close. And then I, I remember when I used to interview people uh, as a television journalist, and I'm sure you run into the same. When you pre-interview, when you just talk about what you're going to do, people are so smart and they express themselves so well. And then you turn the camera on and my God, they freeze and they use those big words. And uh, so I always had this idea that interviewees have the right to get their message out. It's a ping pong match. Everybody can serve, you know, and teach them how to get their opinions across and and so that's how I started my company and, and I ran it for 35 years. <laughs> and I, uh, I thought of my brother during COVID when my business slowed down and we had to stay home and we had to do something. I had to do something because all of a sudden, not much business and we're locked in and I was going nuts. What to do, what to do. And that's when I started, uh, that's when I decided to write the book. Because um, first I wrote a handbook, which was very easy about communications and uh, to, to sell the business. And it's doing quite well. And then I realized, oh, well, I can write a book for print because I always worked in television and that book seems so big, you know. But then when I wrote the handbook, I thought, 
I just start doing some letters now to my granddaughter, letters to Lexi, and tell her about how I was when I was a kid Mm -hmm. learning and how I was when I was a teenager. And I fell in love with writing. I really just find it great. And so it became a book. And you're you're such obviously such a great storyteller. Um, and the book is written in such a, a you know an unpretentious kind of way. You just mm. really it's it really it's hard to put down. I know a lot of people Thank have you. said that about the book because it's just such a you tell a, a, a powerful story in a very gentle way. Um, and I think there's a, you know obviously a real art to that. You really endear yourself to people. Um, you know not not consciously but. But uh, there's just so much humanity, uh, you know, that pours out of, uh, you know, the way you tell your stories and every and, and such an inspiration. Oh, thank you. For someone like you, I think because I, and this is another reason why um, you resonate with me so deeply. I think maybe to you as to me, retirement is kind of a dirty word. I mean, I don't know about you, but I get very upset with people when they say, oh, are you retired yet? Or did you retire? What? It's like, I did not, like, how dare they? To me, retire means like lying down to go to sleep. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that if you're ready for it. No, I, 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 I am 10 years older or so, at least, uh, than you. I, I can't see myself retire unless I get ill and couldn't well, do anything. Well, of course, God But as, thank God I'm healthy and I have lots of energy. What would you, you know, ultimately, um, because you're such a great role model for women, and I don't think that we have enough of them. I mean, when I think of, you know, a, a, maybe a handful, you know, who we have people like, uh, uh, you know, oh, a Helen Mirren or a Rita Moreno or a Jane Fonda, you know, when you think of people in show right. business or Judy Dench, you know, people say, oh yeah, well, she's, you know, 90 yeah. and still going strong. But young women have so few women, I think, to really look up to because not that there aren't, they aren't out there but because they don't get celebrated and elevated and they don't really have a platform sometimes to share their stories what do you say to that how how can we best inspire you know the younger generation that really you know is looking to us well you know uh when a woman is ambitious she often uh is called pushy and if we speak loud then we are told that you're shrieking and uh I think young women have to be more aggressive and go for it. You know, I I think it's worthwhile reinventing yourself as many times as you need to. If this doesn't work, because not everything is going to work. If this doesn't work, go this way. Find the opportunity. Never give up. Don't just settle for the life that you were dealt, you know, whatever circumstance you're given. Don't just settle and say, well, it's not really what I want, but it will do. Go for it. Find find something you love to do and enjoy because that will bring you the accomplishment you want. I, I really feel very strongly about that. So hard for some people to uh, muster the confidence required, though, to do that yeah. because we're constantly, you know, being shut down or put down or, you know, doors are slamming in our faces all the time, you know, how do you tell someone to, to believe in themselves when they're not sure that they really do? Yeah, uh, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, 
various ways. Uh, when I started Media Techniques uh, and um, I had some big presidents and CEOs of huge companies, and I used to be very nervous about, you know, telling them very personal things because communication it has to be personal. And I used to just tell myself to remember that they have to tie their shoelaces too, and that they have to lean down and they look awkward and they have a big bum and, and, and that's what I should remember so I wouldn't be scared of them. That's just an anecdote. But I think you have to talk to yourself that if you really want it, you have to, you have to swallow your fear and you gotta go for it. And just one no is nothing. That doesn't mean means that uh, the person was in a bad mood or it was bad timing or I don't know, just don't give up. I'm so with you. I mean, that's my dad, my parents are Holocaust survivors and that was their motto that saw them through, don't be afraid and never give up. You know, as long as you're fearless and tenacious, you can really do anything. You just have yeah. to keep going. Yeah, I know it's easier said than done. And my life certainly hasn't been easy, but I, I certainly had fun. I mean, I, I have more fun when I'm working than when not. <laughs> Your mom was a great, great, great inspiration to you and a great, you know, and uh, oh, I, yeah. I really felt uh, so so strongly about the, the passages that you would write about your mom and especially uh, towards the end of her life. And, uh, mm. and I read that part and she was 94 when she passed and my mom was 94 when she passed. And my mom was an incredible influence on me too. What would you say the greatest lesson that your mom uh, taught you was? Because she saw you through all kinds of stuff. She was a lot stronger than I was. Mom, uh, my uh, grandparents were also murdered in Auschwitz. And my mom um, was divorced from my father. So therefore my father was Catholic and while they were married, she was protected. But this is in 1944 when they got divorced, the worst possible time. And um, so she and I were in hiding. So she was, she was very, very, very strong woman. And I think through all that, she was the one that instilled in me that you can do anything if you really trust. You know, it was like she kept me alive because at my age, at age four or five, I would have been in the crematorium without her uh, making sure that we didn't get that's why I never shied away from trying. I think that's what she gave me. Yeah. Well, I'm sure she's uh, she's with you still, uh, cheering you on and uh, and supporting you. Uh, you are an absolute uh, delight, Aggie. I'm so happy that I met you. Uh, you inspire me. You're going to inspire a whole lot more uh, people. You know, with this gorgeous book forever on point uh, so many lessons to be learned from that thank you so much and go to Gore for being on this episode of beyond style matters thanks for listening new episodes of the podcast will be coming at you every other monday you can watch style matters thursday on tsc or online at the tsc.ca website Till next time, I'm Jeannie Becker.